I want to welcome everyone back to the Duck Pond Wall. We, our guest last week was so good that we're going to talk to him again about a different topic this time around. Dr. Eric Drummond-Smith, Emory and Henry class of 1998. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We got carried away last week talking about politics because... You know, the dude is brilliant, and I should have known we couldn't, you know, <laughs> I am not, rope him I'm into not. 30 minutes. But I did want to talk to him about some other topics. So as we get going today on the Duck Pond Wall, I want to, again, remind everyone that one of the reasons we're talking with Eric is because he teaches at UVA Wise um, just down the road. And we are so excited that WEHC 90.7 FM is now expanding its signal into that neck of the woods, into a, a greater part of the great Southwest, as my friend Mary Trigiani likes to say. Um, and we are now WEHC 90.7 FM and WISE FM Wise broadcasting on 90.5. And you can also hear us in Clintwood at 90.3, Norton at 91.7, and Pound at 91.3. You know, I didn't know this until all this happened, but WISE, or W-I-S-E, is one of the few stations that actually spells out the name of its town. And I meant to go Google that and see what the others are. I'm I'm making some guesses in my head. I don't, I don't know that many towns that just have four letters, but... I thought Probably was, not a lot. Yeah, apparently it's, very, it's a very small segment. I thought that was kind of cool. I always liked the fact that our TV station at home was WVVA, so West Virginia, Virginia for Bluefield. Oh, Wuva. I thought it spelled something. I was trying to make that Wuva. word. Wuva. Yeah, Wuva was a dude who lived down the street from me. He uh, was cool. He had a Lamborghini. Nice. It, could, it didn't work, but yeah. it was cool. It was, <laughs> he had it up on blocks. Yeah, and yeah. we would all go like pose by it for like Polaroid pictures. I guess that's what a selfie would be in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Well, was not a real guy. So today, though, we talked. So we talked about politics last week, and mm-hmm. where we left off was me sort of talking with you about how you keep your um, your hope alive and your sense of humor alive while dealing with the politics of the world, which is not always exactly laughable, despite the fact that there are entire shows that in fact do laugh at world issues and that kind of thing and and i get most of my news from wait wait don't tell me so i do understand love that that show oh it's so much fun so smart but but you are an artist and Mm -hmm. um let's just start here you've got an art show coming up at william king is that right i do at the at the end of december it'll be going up and january 12th we're going to have the formal opening Oh, nice. Um, and uh, it's up, I believe, until early April. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. We should do an alumni event at the William King Art Center. I'm in. Oh, we should do that. Look, that just got born right here on WEHC. Amazing. W-I-S-E. So, I'll say all the other call letters. Oh, no, I'm out. I'm out. I, had, I, I, took, <laughs> I took my readers off. I can't do that by heart yet. <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, so you've got this cool show coming up at, at William King. What what is is there a theme or is it just Eric Smith Live? I'm an insane person who likes to paint. Okay. Uh, it's it's called, the, the title is The Big Ugly Hullabaloo, uh, which is actually what I call my website. What does I, that mean? You know, a hullabaloo is a real like a party, like a, like a hoedown, like a hoedown, like a party, like mm-hmm. a real like mess, like a hoot nanny, like a hoot nanny, and and also kind of like just a mess, like a like the fair was here and the elephants got loose. That's a hullabaloo, yeah. You know, and then ugly is kind of a reference to the fact that like I love beautiful ugly things and I like to paint beautiful what I think are beautiful ugly things. I hope are beautiful ugly things. All right, let's just start right there because I do, and I'm gonna 
do a written piece about this to have on the website, and oh, it will cool. include some, you know, some. I'll include pictures of some of your art. As you know, my house has quite a lot of your art hanging around in it. I was talking about your bats the other day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yes. I love my bat. And so talk to us. Explain what you mean by ugly, beautiful things. All right. This is going to be real. Or did ho- you say beautiful, ugly things? They're all this. It's, okay. this, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. Okay. Now I want donuts. Thanks. Oh, you're a grown woman. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound really hoity-toity. But it's the, to me, it's the easiest way to explain it. Okay. Have you ever heard of an artist named Hieronymus Bosch? I used to shop at a place called Hieronymus, but go ahead. Probably named after the original. He was a Northern Renaissance painter who painted really uh, weird, ugly things that okay. were tremendously beautiful. Uh, if I, and I encourage you and your listeners to go look him up and get on the old Wikipedia and or you know World World www all that. Yeah. But it's how it, do you he, spell his last name? B O S C H. Okay. Thank um, you. But yeah, yeah, he he would paint like scenes of hell. He would paint scenes of the Garden of Eden. He would uh, paint. He painted really weird stuff though, like all sorts of monsters and demons and 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 I always, when I was a kid, I always was attracted to like dinosaurs, Halloween decorations, old nineteen thirties cartoons, mm-hmm. um, you know, on and on. All these this kind of mismatch of things, and then like. I love Mexican traditional art, especially the art of calaveras or, or skeletons. Right. And um, and I was I love things that are beautiful in spite of we're kind of supposed to think they're ugly. If that makes sense. Who who tells us that we're supposed to think they're Just ugly? Just society. I feel like like all right like all right. What's a good one? Oh, so my freshman year here, I had uh, Dean Dossey, Doctor Dossey. For Western traditions, my first Western class, mm-hmm. and we had to do a report on someone. We had to do a biographical report, and the someone should be important because they cross-reference two things. I remember that. Okay. So I was like, I don't know who the heck to write about. So I looked up a bunch of different people, and I found uh, Andreas Vesalius, who was one of the first people in centuries to do really accurate dissections and anatomical paintings and drawings. Oh. And they're amazing. Again, worth looking up. Yeah. Um, but they're very ugly because, you know, it's a corpse. It's yeah. It's – but they're beautiful. It's harsh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, but there's this weird contrast. And, and that's true when you look at, like, Chinese or Japanese or Arabic, like, anatomical drawings anywhere. If they're done well, are really, really, on the one hand, beautiful. And they're really grotesque. And I think that that's a lot of life. I think that, you know – we all look at the cathedral and we're like, look how elegant and beautiful it is. But what are the things we keep taking pictures of? It's the gargoyles. Yeah. You know? That's funny. Yeah, that's true. So that's sort of how I – my aesthetic is I want – like I love pretty things. I, I paint a lot of flowers and birds. Those are the pretty things I paint. But I paint a lot of stuff that's kind of a little bit grotesque. Well, I, got, I remember one of the stories I remember you telling me was that you had an art teacher who tried to make you mm-hmm. like – do like, I don't know, fruit in a bowl or flowers in a vase or something. And you were just like, no, I don't want to do that. She she wanted us to uh, – my mom signed me up for a summer art thing uh, in, in Bluefield. And uh, it was – everything I'd done was dinosaurs. <laughs> and she's like, well, I want you to do something basically much more standard art. Uh, and I'm like, okay. So I made something and it – I turned it in, but it was kind of like upside down. 
And she was like, oh, that's very pretty. But then when she finally turned it right side up, she realized it was a killer whale fighting a giant squid. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she, she was so angry. I, I was amazing. And then years later, like I was a junior or senior in high school, I had won a prize at a local art contest for a painting, or not a painting, a drawing I did with uh, super duper fancy colored pencils. I don't Ooh. even use colored pencils hardly anymore. But, but you remember those pencils? Oh, I oh, yeah. oh, my mom got them for me, and they were amazing. You know how they felt. You know what they smelled like. Yeah, every yeah, yeah. little detail. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it was a bunch of goblins that I had drawn, and it was called the King of the Goblins because one of them had just been elected king. It was just like a there was a story. Yeah, like as most of my stuff, kind of mm-hmm. you know, eventually turns out to be. I had won like a prize. It was nice, you know. I got a ribbon and. I'm standing there with my parents looking at it, like just basking. And this woman comes over and she goes, did I teach you art? I'm like, I don't think so. And she goes, no, no, you're the one who used to always draw dinosaurs in my one summer thing. Oh, funny. And I'm like, oh, I guess, yeah, yeah, you did. And she goes, I thought that was you and just walked away. (laughs) Didn't say yay or wasn't impressed, did not like it. And I was like, this will be a... I didn't know it was great. It was like a metaphor for what the rest of my life will be with art. And like, does, she, does she have a, a show with the William King Art Museum coming up? To my knowledge, she does not. Yeah. She was, she, I mean, she was a very traditional artist who was gifted in her own right, but she didn't like art that wasn't very traditional art. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, again, it's, and maybe this is the intersection between politics and art because so much is up for interpretation mm-hmm. and it's, so much depends on last week you were talking about the fact that so much of politics is personal in a way because mm-hmm. we all bring our own personalities and our thoughts and our experiences to the table and you can't undo that. Yeah. And it'll I'm, always be there. Yeah. And art in, in is of course the same way. And, mm-hmm. and, and then you have to throw in opinion and you have to throw in aesthetic and you have to throw in, Oh, it just feels right. And all the things that go into making a piece of art that, you know, how do you ever, how does this woman ever look at you and say, eh, I don't like your stuff? And, you know, how, how does that happen? Do I mean, you- I don't like stuff, but, but to me, here's the, here's the difference between someone who doesn't like stuff that I respect and someone who doesn't like stuff that I don't respect. Someone who doesn't like stuff, especially, let me, let me say this. This is for hoity-toities. This is for people who study art and don't just, like, casually interact with art. Right. Right? So if you're, if you're an artist or you're an art historian or you're an art critic – or you're just someone who's like, I really care about art and is like going through the effort to make commentary, right? If you aren't exposing yourself to new artists and new art forms all the time, you're a slacker, <laughs> to use a very 90s term. And you're not, you're not going to stretch yourself. You're not going to learn. And you're surely not going to learn to appreciate styles and cultures of art that are different. Like there's art I do not like, but I respect right. in terms of the work that went in and the underlying logic and the, the handicraft behind it. And and then there's art that I'm like, that's barely art. It's it's more it, it is it's decoration only. Mm-hmm. And if it's only decorative to me, it's not art. Like there's a place for decoration, right? But decoration is. Like for me, art. I've actually been thinking about this a lot. Have for, you? For, yeah, I'm working on a new art statement. Um, oh. And so for me, like a big part of what makes art art is it has to be intersubjective. It has to try to communicate something. Yeah. 
whether that's an idea or an emotion or what. Where, for you, yeah. and I won't say for other artists because it would be unfair, for you, is the is the main power of art in the creation of it, in the sharing of it, in the part about how other people see it and interpret it, and about how what their reaction is to it? Where's the Where's the biggest area of strength in art for you? I believe it's multi-part, and it's always going to be multi-part. The first part is the creative process. I won't say it's a solo act for me because I'm engaging with every piece of art I've ever seen before, whether I know it or not. Like I'm part of this great human tradition of making and doing and singing. And, but the, and, and that's something that I think is really underlies it. But, it's, but it is creative and it's, I don't want to say lonely, but it's alone. Right. And then you, even if you're around people, you're in your head, you're in your workspace, you're in your tools. Then you, you you change things a little bit when you go to show it. But for me, now there are some artists who don't think that you have to show art for it to be really art. But for me, it's like that's stillborn art. That's not enough. Like art, there's, and, and par, again, part of this, I, I stole so much of my philosophy from Charles Goolsby on campus here. Uh, that will make him very happy, I think. I, I hope so. <laughs> I, but I did. Like, like I feel like art has to be shown and it has to be seen and it has to be experienced by – like it has to be intersubjective for it to achieve its full nature. And, of course, there's a loss of content and information. Just like when you and I talk, we don't really know exactly what's in each other's heads. But we're interpreting each other's gestures and faces and sounds and all this. And we're, we're trying to approximate it. We're trying to communicate. And maybe the beautiful thing about visual art is it does that potentially over thousands of years. Um, Interesting. So, of course, the more distant you get culturally and so forth, the more dissonance emerges. But there's still – the creative act is important in and of itself. Yeah. But the communication is critical in and of itself. Have you ever – Found yourself making changes based on the fact that you knew it was going to be showed. Sure, I think I think about that a lot. I don't think all artists do. Well, pardon me, rewind. I think almost all artists do, but I don't know that all artists would philosophically admit that they do. Right now, I may get me in trouble with somebody. I don't know. Oh, the the phone lines are lighting up. No, uh, people are in rage. All the all the <laughs> art theoreticians are losing their minds. Mm-hmm. And, New York and, mm-hmm. and L.A. I No, I mean, that's sort of my, and that's what I think. I think we all think about the interpretation. I want to remind everybody we're speaking today with Dr. Eric Drummond-Smith, who is a professor of politics, but he is also an artist and a well-known artist, as a matter of fact, and he has a show coming up at the William King Art Museum starting uh, beginning of January. Is that right? Yes. January well, it's the end of, end of December, I think it goes up, and then January 12th is the formal opening. Okay. I'm also working on a paper that is an attempt to create a political science art double whammy paper. That's a formal really? academic term. Basically, the relationship of art making to civic virtue is what it what I'm thinking right now. So, say it again. Art making mm-hmm. to, and its relationship to civic virtue. Say a little bit more about that. I mean, you don't have to give me your whole thesis, but say a little bit more about that. Well, the, the short version is I've been playing with a longer term thing of trying to write about the liberal arts and civic virtue. Let me let me refer. All right, let me start at the beginning, continue through the middle, and when I reach the end, I'll stop. 
So, so virtue in the sim- it's kind of funny. We talked about this in the last show a little bit. So, virtue is literally, if you want the simplest definition, it is everything that humans do has, or or every tool that we make, in- including you could argue humans themselves have a function, right? Uh, that's Aristotle's logic, mm-hmm. and to the degree that an object fulfills its function, it has virtue. So we can improve the virtue of things. We can by by developing or adding virtues, right? Uses or usefulness. Usefulness, usefulness. like like so. What makes a human virtuous? Like things like courage, right? Courage. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. And now we could go down that track. There's so much interesting stuff to say about that, that like the Confucians said and that Machiavelli said and that Aristotle said and a lot of other much smarter people than me. But like what's really cool for me is that virtue is a kind of ethical idea that helps us to conceptualize how we can improve ourselves. Okay. Like how we can be better than we are today. You know, it's 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 future oriented. Right. One of the arguments of liberal arts education, like, you know, the glorious University of Virginia's College at Wise and the equally glorious Emory and Henry College. Right. Spelled with an ampersand. Is is that liberal arts helps to improve our virtue. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes us better humans and better to do the things that humans are supposed to do. So civic virtue is basically the dimension of our lives that is political. Like when we are acting as citizens, we are as good as citizens as we have civic virtue. And civic virtue in your definition being the things that we do to benefit society? To, To make us ethical citizens. So it is about... It, that service is part of it, but it is also about like finding, like dealing with tension. So, like if you look at like Chinese thought, you have this tension between benevolence and righteousness, the urge to be empathetic and to do good for someone, and the urge to see the outcome of something and someone's treatment match what their behavior was. Now, those aren't exactly the same, right? There's a tension. If you want real justice, that means you can't always empathize with the person that justice is being given to or provided to or directed at. On the other hand, if you want real empathy and real sympathy, it means you're not always going to be just. You're going to, you, your, imp- your goal is to be better to them than maybe they even deserve. Oh. And those exist in a permanent tension that you can't resolve. Interesting. So you have to figure out, those are both key virtues. So part of what we do is we try, if we're Confucian, we try to figure out how to balance those virtues and and that requires learning about them and thinking about them and what i think is art helps us to in particular one of the things it does maybe the most important thing is it helps us to understand this idea of harmony so we have all these different things in our lives that are intention that are different virtues different goals different purposes factions that are at conflict and art helps us to think about taking things that are different in form and function and recombining them in a way that harmonizes them and thereby through that uh, process makes them able to do qualitatively and quantitatively more good and more beautiful things. And that is – so art, whether we're talking about music, whether we're talking about drama, whether we're talking about the visual arts, they help us to learn and think 
in a way that helps us to, to resolve tensions and harm, harmonize human relationships. And when you say that, do you mean, all right, you mean the, the observer as well as the creator? I think both. Okay. And, and what, do you think that when people create art, they have in mind to, do, to like have an influence? That's a good question. Not always. I think, I think, here's the thing, like that's the dilemma of like when you talk about why is art useful for X as opposed to why is art great in general. Right. Like art is, it does not just exist for the sake of politics, obviously, and it shouldn't. But there are a lot of people are. A lot of like great thinkers have said that. Oh, really? Like, oh yeah, you read Aristotle and you get into it, he's like banning forms of art and Oh, it's not politically useful. We shouldn't do it. Wow. Uh, Plato is way worse than him. You know, wow. oy vey. But like, I don't like Plato. Anyways, um, but we. I like Play-Doh. Oh, I love Play-Doh. Big fan. I always, Big fan. I always make the Loch Ness Monster yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. I make a snowman because that's all I can do. It's about and the snake. same. And a snake. A snake. I love a snake. Who doesn't love a snake? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I>, we are 12. <laughs> I, but no, I like ultimately, yeah. Like I don't think that's what all art is for, right? But I think in terms of what it does for politics, that's one of the key things. I think another thing it does is it activates our emotional – it interplays with our emotional brain. So like like I'm a political scientist. I think about politics as much as possible in that context and as a political philosopher in a rational way, in a systematic way. But the simple truth of the matter is that's not all the content that's relevant to human life. Like emotions bloody well matter. They, they're related to our identity. They're related to our ability to – like how we interpret things and mm-hmm. even what we'll consider rationally. Art helps us to train that. Do you think that it is helpful physiologically to the human brain to experience art? Do you think that maybe gives us a different aspect or a different way to interact with the world because we have – sort of activated parts of our brain that don't get activated when they're not exposed to art. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think if we if we're not the world is full of so many different kinds of experiences and a genuinely healthy brain this is a real liberal arts pitch right here. If we're going to be healthy and complete humans, we need to be engaging with the world in all these things. Like I'm not a musician. I I can't sing for sin. But I want to hear music as much as I can. I want to watch plays. I want to watch good movies. But I, I also try to push myself to read not just books I like, you know, the science and political science and the great fictional works. But like when somebody says, this is a really important book, and I think to myself, I'll do, I'll do the whole thing. You roll your eyes and sigh and go, ugh, sounds horrible. If, if I accept the fact that there's probably some real value to the book, I still, I, I still try to make myself read it, even if I'm not interested. And even if afterwards I go, I hated every minute of that, but it probably did something for me. Right. You, and you haven't always done this style, but more recently you've done this thing that I love mm-hmm. where you, you draw your, as you said, your beautiful, scary-looking thing, your beautiful, mm-hmm. ugly thing. But then there are all these wonderful words all around mm-hmm. it. And you made fun of me for saying James Joyce a few minutes ago. <laughs> some of that does feel It's like the Dubliners. Funny. Tell me what precipitated you starting to do that. And I see that you're still doing that. What's that about? You want to know the truth? Yeah. I've been trying to do that since high school. Seriously? 
and I couldn't make it work. And I mean, over and over, I probably still have pieces from like college where I was trying to make it work and I couldn't make it work. And it, the, the, I, could, I could trace to you all the art history things I've encountered that taught me what I needed to learn. You know, Chinese calligraphy that I took with uh, Dr. Gilroy at UVA, the work of Howard Finster, a folk artist, and finding him and then just digging in and reading his stuff. And just, just certain kinds of new techniques that I kept experimenting with and weird ways of combining, mi mixing paints in new ways, like all sorts of weird stuff. Like it's been a long road to get there. Yeah, but so the words though, talk, talk to me about that. Oh, okay. Do you okay. mean to convey something there? Normally I'm trying to convey, because I think of myself as at least in part an expressionist, probably principally, more than anything else an expressionist. So I'm trying to convey an emotional content that plays off of symbolic logics and, and like the related, whatever like the cultural stuff that I'm referencing is. But I want to convey like an emotional state. So normally I'm listening to music when I make art. And the music has created an emotional state with me. And if you're if you're in the studio, I'm listening to the same song sometimes on repeat for seven or eight hours uh, to get that beat and the backbeat and the the words are leaking into my brain. They're leaching in, and and I'm like ultimately what I'm doing is I'm kind of improvising a kind of quasi prose, quasi poetry, ludicrous you know stream of thought. Right. That is in a poetic kind of engagement with the visual imagery. But I'm also like I have rules for myself like that I had to develop because I couldn't do it well for 20 bloody years. So like rule one is when you screw up, you screw up, live with it. Just keep going. You just keep going. You can put the correction in if it fits and if not, you don't. But you never like you mark it out. You show where you made the mistake. I want all my work. The older I get like when I was in college, Goolsby. Uh, Professor Goolsby used to tell me he loved my sketches more than my final work, and I agreed. And now what I try to do is make final work that is all sketches, and that includes both linguistic sketches and visual sketches. Does that mean you you maybe you relax a little bit it, it, about the I, final product? I relax, and I don't care if I screw up. Okay. If I screw up bad enough, then I just paint over it. If And so you don't like – you don't sit down with this – image and say, today, I'm going to convince people that they need to, um, you know, think differently about the world. Not really. I, I will sit down with ideas and I sketch still, right? But the sketch will be like, it's a sketch. It's like an outline of something, uh, of a symbol or an icon or an image or a figure. And I'm like, okay, there's something there. And then I come into the moment and I sit down and I listen to the music and I listen long enough that it gets me into an emotional state. And then I'm like, okay. And I start combining the ideas from the sketches, which sometimes I haven't looked at for days, with the whatever tools I have there. And I don't, it doesn't really matter what I have. I can make something out of it, hopefully. It yeah. may not be good, but I can make something out of it. Uh, listen, I've seen you do this your whole life where you just make up a story or you, you, know, you improvise. And so that, that, it doesn't surprise me that you can do that. But it, it, it surprises me that you, that you in many ways don't really have a sort of a roadmap for where you're going with that. I think of it like jazz. Like the more I've learned about jazz, uh, I didn't really even start listening to jazz till grad school. And I wish I'd listened to it. I listened to Motown. That that saved me. But my mom loved Motown and opera. 
and the idea of improvisational jazz. And you go in and you start with ideas and people are bringing in and experimenting. Sometimes it's horrible. That's why, that's why session jazz is often the best because they've done 20 different versions and then one where they experimented all together. You have all these different people experimenting with all these things and then it just clicks. And it's like, oh, snap. But to do that, they had to mess up a lot. Yeah. And Chinese calligraphy is kind of like that. The stuff I like, at least, is like, you just do it. And yeah. it's good or it isn't. But, but you do it. But you, you, you let your emotions run and you just paint it. Well, it's fascinating, though, to hear you talk about how that works. Because, you know, I, they're, it, it, they usually always make me laugh, to be honest with you. The, the, the pieces that you put out, just, just because, again, it's, it's your imagination that I mm-hmm. see so beautifully conveyed through this crazy thing that you have written mm-hmm. all around your subject. And, it, I, you know, I just have, that has just been a personal curiosity of mine for a very long time about wh- where that comes from and how you do that. My brain's a war zone. It's a mess. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to argue with that. No, no, there's no but way it's to. A be- but it's a beautiful <laughs> war zone. Yeah, it's it's beautiful and ugly. Brings us back. See, like there we it, go. Like this is full circle. All yeah. right. And on that, I am going to wrap us up. But I do want to thank you so much for being my guest today on the Duck Pond Wall. Dr. Eric Drummond-Smith, class of 1998, a professor of political science, politics, call it what you want to call it. He talks about people in the world and how they work together and sometimes don't so well. (laughs) And then he's also an artist. And I hope that you will, if you're listening and you're close enough to get to William King. Um, Art Museum in Abingdon. I hope that you will come and support his art show that will begin at the end of December. And we look forward to seeing that. Eric, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a joy. All right. Thank you all for being with us today on the Duck Pond Wall and here on WEHC Emory, WISEFM Wise. We are, in fact, the voice of Southwest Virginia. Go Emory and Henry. Go UVA Wise. (laughs) 